Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Jeff Finn Paul joins the show for a conversation about urban life in Catalonia in the 14th century. Dr. Finn Paul is Associate Professor at the Institute for History at Leiden University, based in the Netherlands. He has written numerous publications over his career, including authoring the books The Rise and Decline of an Iberian Bourgeoisie, Manresa in the Later Middle Ages, 1250-1500, which was published by Cambridge University Press, and Family, Work and Household in Late Medieval Iberia, a Social History of Manresa at the Time of the Black Death, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Finn Paul joins the show today from the Netherlands. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. It's good to connect with you, Jeff. So to start with, um, so we're going to chat about and explore what scholars know about urban life in Catalonia in the 14th century CE. Sure. Can you... Uh, start with sharing what the geographic demarcation of Catalonia is and then and then also inside of that response or, or was I should say so so the geographic demarcation that Catalonia was in the period of time that we're speaking about today and can you also bring into your answer uh, geopo- geopolitics from a um, this this territory that we are speaking about um, what was its its uh, what was its relationship at a at a at a government level to to other uh, relevant um, go- governments? Because I know there's some different uh, s- uh, states and and parts of states at at play in in understanding Catalonia in this period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, the the question was a convoluted one, but it also reflects the fact that Catalonia has a convoluted history. So I think it uh, it sets the problem up really well. Um, Catalonia is the northeast corner of Spain, and uh, it was in the time, and it still is now. The difference is at the time in the 14th century, parts of what are now France belonged to Catalonia. So Catalonia was bigger in the 14th century and it subsequently lost a little bit of its northern territory to France. Like Perpignan, for example, is now in France, but it used to be Catalan. Now, Catalonia uh, is the, the sort of core of the area that speaks the language of Catalan. So that's different from Castilian Spanish, which we know today, and also Occitan, which was the southern French language at the time. Uh, so Catalonia had this sort of linguistic identity back then, and it's continued this up to the present day, so there's even a little bit of separatism within Spain based on that. At the time, Catalonia was the center of a kingdom of eastern Spain that you've heard of, Aragon. So we've all heard of uh, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. Well, those two got married in 1472. So that's right after our time, well, uh, several decades after our time. But they united the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, and that became Spain as we know it today. Um, But before they united the kingdoms, Aragon was separate. It was a kingdom in eastern Spain. 
Catalonia was the core of Aragon, if you will. Aragon also, uh, because of Barcelona being the capital of Catalonia and really Aragon as well, uh, the kingdom of Aragon as well, because Barcelona was the capital city, it was a maritime city and it spread its influence throughout the Western Mediterranean. Most people don't realize it, but in the 14th century, Barcelona merchants were some of the most powerful, wealthy, uh, and influential merchants in the entire Mediterranean, uh, second really only to the Genoese and the Venetians. The Catalans were spread throughout the Mediterranean at this time, and they even held territory as far east as Greece. They, closer to home, had uh, territory in Mallorca. Uh, the islands just off the east coast of Spain, um, the Balearic Islands, and they also held territory at various times in Sicily and uh, in southern Italy, especially in the next century, in the 15th century. So suffice to say that Barcelona helped to anchor a, a, a naval expansion of Aragon throughout the Mediterranean in the late Middle Ages. They even pushed the Genoese uh, out of a lot of that territory, and so they were even stronger as a naval power than the Genoese. Using your, your term, uh, convoluted, Jeff, I do that on purpose sometimes so that you, you can showcase your knowledge. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, There's a couple of other things we could say about the crown of Aragon very quickly. They were in the 14th century at war with Castile part of the time, and they were sometimes earlier on at war with France. So they were definitely an independent power nestled between Castile and France in Eastern Spain. Okay, all, all, all joke, jokes aside, thank you for expanding on that, Jeff. And and yeah, there's a lot of dynamics um, at, at play. So yeah. I'm glad we, uh, we opened um, with that dialogue. So, so are we so are we talking just for the sake of um, being fastidious around terminology? Are we talking about the principality of Catalonia? Is that an appropriate thing to call what we're talking about today? Sure. Well, the the Kingdom of Aragon had three main provinces in Spain. So there was Aragon proper, which was a desert kingdom centered around Saragossa. And then there was the Kingdom of Valencia, centered around the city of Valencia, and then the Principality of Catalonia, which was centered around Barcelona. In the Principality of Catalonia, what were, and of course some of this still might be um, present today, but we're speaking about a historical topic right now, what were the um, main ur urban centers or you could take it in a, a slightly different way. What are, what are the main ones that you think we should flag for this conversation today? Sure. So, I mean, we're really talking about Barcelona. That was the metropolis of this uh, principality of Catalonia and the metropolis in the sense of being the major economic center and population center for Catalonia. It maybe had 40 or 50,000 people at the time period that we're talking about, although the Black Death may wreak havoc with that figure. We can talk about that later. Um, whereas the other cities maybe only had 10,000 people. We're talking Perpignan, Girona, Tarragona. Um, 
and a few other centers uh, such as uh, Lerida. So, but Barcelona was far and away the most important city in the principality, to be sure. Tell us more about, to create sufficient background and context, then we can work our way into the details. Tell us more about what urban life would have been like in some of these urban centers uh, in this period of time in the 14th century. Well, it's really interesting because cities at this time were like little islands of a different sort of life uh, where everyone around them was rural. I mean, today we still think about that perhaps in, in the United States uh, and Canada where we think of a divide between urban and rural life, but it was very marked in the 14th century as well. Uh, so in other words, in the rural areas, everyone was basically either a peasant or a lord. I mean, there were, were some differentials uh, going on, but in the cities, you had a chance to do different professions. And that meant that you had opportunities to make, well, maybe a little bit more of an interesting life for yourself. So cities in the 14th century in Catalonia had a wealth of professional classes. Um, so there would be scribes, there would be lawyers, there would be notaries, apothecaries, uh, and people of that sort. And then there were a number of craftspeople. So there were craftsmen uh, who would work with wood, with iron, with leather, uh, make clothing. And so it was manufacturing processes which really drove urban life. At the same time, there were also institutions which helped give extra freedom to the people who lived in the city. So this classic idea of the medieval city where uh, city air makes one free, that also existed in Catalonia. Um, in other words, you were not expected to be beholden to a lord if you lived in the city, if you were a citizen. Uh, you were beholden really only to the king. So you didn't have a feudal lord kind of breathing down your neck. Uh, this meant that people were free to pursue their own economic interests and personal interests, and it helped to give a, a flair and a, an initiative to life, which made urban life quite vibrant. So that's basically the main difference between these kind of islands of urbanity where there's a little more uh, opportunity and a little more uh, difference in what people did with the more, I, I know rural historians will get mad at me, but maybe a more, uh, homogenous lifestyle in the countryside. What can you share about family life inside of some of these urban centers? What, what that would have been like? Yeah, uh, so in Catalonia, you might think that there would be an extended family where, uh, you know, a traditional maybe Mediterranean family where there was uh, extended um, households with lots of relatives living under the same roof, but in fact, it looks like they were mostly um, practicing uh, nuclear families. Uh, so the style of uh, living that they had was one man, one woman under a roof, maybe with your parents, uh, maybe with a few servants in the household. Now, um, families did try to perpetuate their name so if you were a prominent family, you might take pride in the fact that your father had had the same last name as you or surname as you for several generations. But in practice, after three or four generations, families tended to die out. 
Um, urban life was notoriously uh, difficult uh, to uh, survive. There were a lot of diseases in the city, and so after several generations, families tended to, to, to fade away. Um, but so there would be a nuclear family, and you would have usually the head of the household being the father, although there were widow heads of household as well. It was expected that the father would have a profession, whether that was a craftsman or a professional person. Um, and then if there were various sons, if there was more than one son, then the oldest son would tend to practice the father's profession and younger sons were usually settled in a lesser status profession, uh, usually because the family couldn't afford to set multiple sons up in the same profession as the father. Because the way that people chose a profession was actually based on their wealth. If you had more money, you could say become a butcher because you could afford a herd of cattle to slaughter. Whereas if you didn't have as much money, you might become a carpenter, for example. So um, for women, if you were widowed, you could head a household. You would have to practice different economic strategies such as investing uh, in cider presses that other people could rent out. So women had to be creative, but they still made money. Um, so it's an interesting topic. We can get into all sorts of things on that, but I just wanted to lay a few basics first. Let's let's go 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 to that soon, because um, we want we want to t touch on some of the main main roles. You mentioned servants in um, either the response you just provided or the one one before it. Did slavery? exist in this period of time in this region that we're speaking about? Yeah, well, this brings in the question of the Black Death, because before the Black Death, there was not much slavery in Catalonia. There was a little bit of slavery when prisoners of war were taken from Islamic countries, but in practice, these tended to be ransomed and it wasn't a long-term slavery. But the Black Death caused so much havoc uh, and actually raised the wages of servants so much because there were so many people had died that now servants, remaining servants said, hey, I want to be paid twice as much or three times as much as before. Um, that happened so people started importing slaves from the Eastern Mediterranean to make up for the lack of servants. So there was some slavery in Catalonia, but only in the latter half of the 14th century. Then this tended to die out around 1450 for various reasons, including the fact that the guilds didn't like the competition from slaves. So they actually pushed the king to outlaw slavery. Is it known what year that slavery was outlawed? Well, there were various acts, and so it just tended to die a sort of slow death. Um, after 1450, it went into decline. And by, by the 1500s, there were very few slaves in Eastern Spain. Okay. Was there an education system? Could youth go and be educated within a state type system or otherwise? Yeah, um, that's also a really interesting uh, question with a dynamic answer. At the beginning of the century, there were a lot more public services actually, and then after the Black Death, uh, resources became scarce uh, because the cost of things went up, and so they tended to dismantle the public education system. 
But in the early part of the century, the cities would hire teachers and both boys and girls could go to study under the, under the uh, public school system uh, under a teacher who was hired by the local town council. So it was actually quite progressive for its day, and that was a new development in the late 13th and early 14th century. Okay. You mentioned some of the main professions earlier. It seemed that those were mostly associated to men in this period. You, you brought up uh, w women earlier as well. Can you expand on what your thought was, what your thoughts were there, and what the main activities that they would have been doing in this period of time? Yeah, it's a, another really dynamic uh, area that a lot of information has been coming to light on recently. Um, so women had more agency than we originally thought. You know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, we tended to think that every time before 1960 was a bad time to be a woman. Uh, but during the 14th century, there were a lot of opportunities which women had. I mean, first of all, just as uh, a person running the household, uh, women were expected to manage the servants and do a lot of domestic economy. A lot of times if men weren't very good at figures or managing the business end of their uh, craftsman business, for example, uh, women would take that over. So women were often very good at managing household accounts. They would help merchants uh, keep their books and that sort of thing. But also, women were actually allowed to um, sue in courts of law and allowed to sign legal documents in their own right. So this wasn't a kind of patriarchal society that said that women could not sign legal documents. Uh, we have examples of wealthier women and widows from middle-class backgrounds who would often sue very powerful local people, church officials, uh, merchants, the town government, um, to, for example, pay, uh, you know, to, to get a reduction in taxes or to uh, change land boundaries. And so there was a lot of agency which women could have, and this also meant that they could buy and sell things, meaning they could speculate in land, they could speculate in real estate. We have women who buy mills uh, and then sell them to the highest bidder. Um, and so women, when they were wealthier, could sometimes uh, take on very high-ranking local officials uh, to a way that we can find kind of astonishing. For example, I have this one uh, record of a, a middle-class woman who married a, a lord who owned a castle locally. He died, she became the heiress to the castle. And then the local town government went cap in hand to her, begging her for a loan when they had to pay taxes to the king. So she was in a position of deciding whether or not to lend money to the local town council. Uh, it's pretty astonishing when you think about it. Okay. Out of curiosity, that, that particular record, so this kind of gets at the sources, how does that record show up? How did you get your hands on it? Yeah, well, we have some really great records in Catalonia. I mean, the one that I have is called a Libra Manifesti. Uh, that was a, an exhaustive tax record that listed the household goods of every single householder, whether a widow or a uh, married man or unmarried man, in the whole city. 
So it details even what they have in the contents of their cellar. It's an amazing snapshot. Uh, that's one source that we have. It, it also gives the value of each of these things. So you can do a lot with that. Um, we also have these personal notarial books, which means that individual families would keep records of all the legal documents that they signed, including uh, lending money to other local families. So we know that a lot of women were engaging in these loans because we have those family books. Those are some of the most important. Of course, there's also royal records, which talk about the royal administration of the city. And then the town councils also kept their own record books. So we have a whole, we have parallel series of records filling in gaps with each other. You probably like that as a scholar. Oh my goodness. It's, it's such a wealth, but see a lot of North American and British, uh, scholars, in the last generation would all go right to Italy. They would skip Spain. I mean, some of it was earlier on, Franco had been there, but um, Spain has been relatively unstudied, especially compared with how rich the archives are. When is the Black Death thought to have uh, per permeated in this, in this region in, in the century? And what was the estimated death toll? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the Black Death pretty much changed everything. We now realize that the Mongol conquests uh, in the early part of the century kind of united Asia and created this perfect um, uh, atmosphere for the spread of a pandemic, which is what happened in Europe by the late 1340s. So in Catalonia, we get the first notices, they were aware that there were, uh, there was a great plague. They had plague before. I mean, there were plagues that ravaged Europe and sometimes 5% of the population would die, which was pretty catastrophic. So there was news of this great plague coming by April, 1348. It didn't hit Barcelona until May. And then it ravaged Catalonia for the next two or three months. And during that time, up to 50% of people in the cities died. And in rural areas, something like 30% of the people died. So I think overall in Catalonia, when you combine those two figures uh, of urban and rural deaths, you might get something like 40% of the population dying over a period of a couple of months. Well, as you can imagine, that was devastating to Catalan life in general. For example, um, town government ceased to function in some places for up to two years. We have no records uh, from the town government because no one was there. Uh, people were hiding in their houses. Many times, um, uh, you know, half the council or more have died. And so we get a sense for several months of a world that was topsy-turvy, that was chaotic, where everyone was forced to uh, uh, fall back on their own resources. Gradually, over several years, things got back to normal. Um, but there were long-lasting economic impacts. Uh, I can talk to you about that if you want to know more. Yeah, if there's if there's more that you think um, that, that you're, you're itching to really ex ex expand on, um, in so in terms of the how how the Black Death may have affected ur urban life, 
if there's if there's more that you want to share, please do so, Jeff. Yeah. Well, um, let's see. So I've already mentioned that the urban institutions ceased to function. For example, bailiffs took sometimes one or two years or even more to figure out the heirs to some people who had died. For example, they would leave a house, but their children had died. And who were they going to leave it to? Uh, this took years. So these sorts of legal uh, ideas, uh, legal events lasted um, far longer than had ever happened before. Um, as far as the economic impact is concerned, we saw wages shoot up, as I've already mentioned. And we see, um, at first, however, people were actually less, um, how should we say, negative about their economic prospects than you might think. So wages shot up, but a lot of business people took this as an opportunity to start investing overseas. So uh, it wasn't all bad right away. Uh, part of the reason for this is because many people during the Black Death had inherited a lot of money. The people who survived might inherit money from two or three relatives, and so they were feeling really wealthy. The problem is, is the plague became endemic in Eastern Spain and really throughout Europe, and so it came back again 12 years later, and this time not nearly as many people died, but it was still maybe 10% of the population, and this had a real dampening effect on everybody's optimism. So it was actually the second wave of plague, as we now know, that really started a sort of depression of the late Middle Ages, an economic depression, but also a social one as well. When did that second plague uh, arrive in this area? In Catalonia, the second plague arrived over the winter of uh, 1362, 63, uh, and then there was another one in the, the 1370s, 1374, and uh, when the plague came back again that second time, you really start to see people despairing, and they were thinking, my goodness, there's not going to be anybody left after 20 years. And indeed, by the end of the 15th century, a lot of European cities had lost 70 or 80% of their pre-plague population. It took 150 years, but Florence had maybe only 20% as many people, and Barcelona as well, as it had had in 1347. Do marriage records exist from this period of time? And I'm going somewhere with this question. Sure. Well, we have uh, those personal notarial books, and here we get dowry records. And so we can tell who married whom, partially because of those dowry records. Uh, and we have a sense of the social status of the participants as well. Do you know offhand, because, um, and for all those listening, these questions aren't, aren't pre-scripted. Do you know offhand, Jeff, um, if marriages were happening during the Black Death. Oh yeah, that, that's a really uh, interesting idea. I mean, during the plague itself, I think that a lot of people were doing what Boccaccio did, which was try to flee to the countryside. Um, so I don't think people at that time were interested in getting married, but I think very soon afterwards, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a uh, sort of a, spree of new marriages because everybody um, who survived, many people anyway, had inherited a lot of property. 
and this would be a reason to marry. You could now marry because you were wealthier. Whether you were a man, which meant you could support a family, or a woman, which meant you could provide a dowry. What's relevant? But do we see... Oh, oh yeah, go yeah, ahead, Jeff, of so course. That then leads to the idea of a baby boom, uh, but do we see a baby boom in the 1350s? I don't think we have detailed enough records, but one could imagine that maybe there was a bit of a baby boom, which was nonetheless negated by the subsequent plague of 1362. Okay. What do you want to share that's important and relevant as it pertains to religion on this topic? Yeah, that's a... Uh... That's another important area, obviously. We're talking about the Middle Ages here. I think what's really interesting is in the 13th century, we see the burghers, the citizens of the cities, fighting against the ancient privileges of the church. Until the 12th and 13th century, uh, the church in Catalonia, like most places in Europe, owned an awful lot of land. I mean, maybe a third or a half of all land was owned by the church. And churchmen had arrogated to themselves a number of feudal rights during these centuries where they, they levied all sorts of taxes and obligations. But in the 13th century, trade was increasing throughout the Mediterranean. And this meant that um, there was wealth in the cities and the burghers could use this wealth to fight the power of the church and that's what they did. So we see them allying with the king against the church over in the years around 1300. And they were spectacularly successful in beating back many of the ancient privileges of the church, even, you know, kind of appropriating church land they weren't legally supposed to, but they still managed. Um, and we actually see a, a sort of not quite anti-clericalism, but I mean, you could see people were thinking of the church almost as their enemy in the early 14th century. There was, there was the secularization of urban society. And this, of course, we see a parallel to this during the Renaissance in Italy with the rise of humanism and all that sort of thing, which people know uh, rather well. So I think there was an ideology in the early 14th century that the town was opposed to the church and the people in the cities didn't have too much of a problem with fighting against the power of the church. However, at the end of our time period in the 15th century, there was a sort of renewal of civic piety. I think the towns were smaller because of the Black Death. They had less power and people became more conservative. So I think in the 15th century, the town embraced a sort of extreme religiosity. Uh, which we see in the early modern period with the Jesuits and with uh, Spanish cities that we tend to think of now, we think of them being uh, bastions of religious uh, feeling. Um, but that, during our century, was at a low point, which is quite interesting and something most people don't realize. Do any people that were Muslim or Jewish come into the records that we're inhabiting in this territory in this period of time? Yeah, now in Catalonia, the Muslims have been uh, driven off as you uh, will, or if you will, very early on by around the year 1000 or before that. 
And so we don't see many Muslims living in the Principality of Catalonia in the late Middle Ages. No, in Valencia there were more, it was a different story. But there were Jewish colonies in almost every city. These Jewish colonies were hard hit by the Black Death. Sometimes there were also pogroms, sort of anti-Jewish movements where they blamed the Jews for the Black Death. Not always. The king tended to protect the Jews because they were a valuable tax resource and nothing else. Um, but the Jewish communities certainly suffered, I think, just partially because they lived right in the middle of the cities. And so during the Black Death, they were especially vulnerable. So after 1348, most of the Jews in the principality moved to Barcelona. Um, and then after 1391, large numbers of them were converted during a, a wave of forced conversion. And then we get the early modern problem of the conversos, the converted Jews, which was, you know, dividing Spanish society for centuries afterwards. Earlier in the conversation near the start, Jeff, you mentioned the term institutions. What types of institutions existed in this period of time in this principality that would have supported urban life? Yeah, um, this is one of my uh, favorite topics, I think, because I don't think people realize just how important institutions are for creating economic life. Um, I think, in general, that the cities of late medieval Europe were vibrant because they had very particular institutions which enabled economic freedom. And these institutions were basically the town council, which was free from feudal interference. The merchants were free to make their own laws. And since they knew business best, they tended to make laws which were good for business. Um, so because these merchants were given the freedom to basically run their own affairs, they were able to create an environment where more people were able to get rich, uh, at least generate a small fortune. So at the beginning of the 14th century, the king, for example, said that no lords were allowed to exercise feudal rights within the city walls. They said that citizens uh, had certain rights not to be searched uh, and seized, not to have their goods searched and seized. Um, the citizens were given economic rights to buy and sell wine within their region, which was an important agricultural commodity and sort of the basis of the local economy. And um, a number of other personal protections, the right to bear arms, which in the Middle Ages was a sign of sort of knighthood. It almost made you equal to, to a knight. Uh, so these things helped just increase the confidence and the spheres of action and the legal rights of the citizen. And that, I think, was the key to why these cities became such economic dynamos. In this period of time, what language would have been spoken or languages in this uh, in this territory? Yeah, so the principality then as now spoke Catalan, which is related to Occitan, um, which is spoken in southern France, or at least was. Uh, there's still a few places to do. Um, and so Catalan in an Occitan or a sort of third language group sandwiched between Spanish as we know it today and French as we know it today. They're similar, 
to Spanish, Catalan uh, uh, and Occitan, but they're definitely different. In closing, Jeff, what, what is there an item that you want to make sure gets across in this episode that we haven't touched on yet? Or is there an item that we did touch on that you'd like to emphasize before we wind up the conversation? Yeah, I think really important to realize is that these cities created a lot of opportunity and a lot of wealth and were in many ways responsible for the creation of the European middle classes as we know them uh, today. For example, people in my time, 80% of urban citizens owned their own home, uh, a number which is enviable even today. Very few of them were in debt. Um, most of them had enough money to provide themselves with a stockpile of food lasting a year or more. Um, and they had an awful lot of agency in terms of what they could do with their wealth. So their lives were surprisingly modern, I think, compared to what people might imagine. Also, after the Black Death, there was a material revolution, which meant that people had very articulate households with lots of furniture, lots of paintings, mirrors. Their lives were very similar to what we might see in the 19th century. In many ways, this period was kind of the beginning of modern urban life as we know it in Europe. This was a dynamic chat, Jeff. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge on this topic. Sure, I had a lot of fun, Andrew. Thanks again. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Finn Paul wrote, he's author of the books, The Rise and Decline of an Iberian Bourgeoisie, Manresa in the Later Middle Ages, 1250 to 1500, and Family, Work and Household in Late Medieval Iberia, A Social History of Manresa at the Time of the Black Death. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Jeff and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.